Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I sometimes feel like I've been talking about Disney movies on a podcast for nearly a hundred years at this point, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, for this first instalment in our bonus mini-series exploring Disney's centenary, I'm a humble beginner just starting to explore his craft, with a slim chance that one day he'll change the history of popular culture forever. Thankfully, I'm joined by a guy who has mastered it. He's been there, he's done that, and he's changed the game in the process. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, Are you okay? You are in the first weeks of term. It's a busy, busy time for you. Are you alive? Are you okay? Yep, it's pretty hectic. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. Uh, There's a lot going on. It's a busy time of year, but it's, it's all fun stuff. I still get to talk about cartoons for a living. And, you know, just to add to how hectic it is, we've got Disney 100. We've got quite a few plans in place for pod stuff and just other stuff um, that we're going to do for Disney 100. And it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on. And then you're going to hold it immediately after that. So <laughs> it's, I think it's a busy time for both of us, but uh, all in, in a fun, positive way. Yeah, and you're talking about this in a future tense. As the listeners are hearing this, this is it. This is part of the plans. We've told you about it on our Twitter feed. If you're not following us on social media, we do try and keep you updated with what's going on. We know we're slightly hectic sometimes with our release schedule. So go and find us on Twitter slash X, which I refuse to call it, and on Instagram as well. Keep in the loop with what we're up to. But yes, this is part one of a three-part special mini-series we're doing to mark Disney 100. This is a big deal in a lot of ways, and we're going to get into exactly what that means and why it's a big deal and why we're talking about it. But Sam, what's your personal feeling heading into this week? Disney is a very corporate thing, but it also does hold a place in people's hearts. It's something that we have spent three years now talking about on the regular do you have any personal feelings heading into the Disney 100 week? God, I don't know. It depends what you mean by personal feelings. I don't feel like an emotional connection to it in a way because, as we're going to talk about, it's it's kind of an arbitrary date that they've picked to celebrate it on. There are later dates that you could put it as and there are earlier dates that you could put as the 100th anniversary of of Disney or of Disney animation or of the Walt Disney Studio or whatever and we'll we'll talk about why it's this date and it does make a lot of sense maybe the most sense out of any of the options but 
I don't know, like whatever, <laughs> hundred years. But what what I do like about it is it means Disney themselves are putting more effort than usual into acknowledging their long history and doing things like we've had a 4K re-release, a 4K remaster of Cinderella, which we were at the the premiere of, or at least the UK premiere of. So that was quite cool. Yeah, we weren't even supposed to be going. I was supposed to be cleaning the house that night, and then you were never going to guess this, right? I'm out in the garden. <laughs> And this fairy godmother turns up and she says, I do PR at the BFI and I can get you some tickets, I can get you some glass slippers, I can get you a pumpkin, but we can do something with the pumpkin and we'll get you there. It was crazy, man. A very good, strong riff. I'm not going to go any further (laughs) with it. (laughs) But thank you for that. That was great. So they're also doing, I think, on the 16th, so today, probably, as you listen to this, they are bringing out a 4K restoration of Snow White on Disney+. Plus. It wasn't helpful for me. I was screening Snow White to my students yesterday (laughs) as we speak. Uh, So that's kind of awkward, like, you could have chosen an earlier date. But so it's cool that they're doing that. They're remastering and re-releasing a lot of the early shorts on Disney+. Plus. Not the one that we're going to talk about today, and not nearly enough of them, in my opinion. But for example, we've got a remastered Skeleton Dance on Disney+, Plus on account of the 100th anniversary, so you can't argue with that. Man, you love those skelly boys. I do. It's. I mean, go out and watch the skeleton dance. We'll get to it eventually. We'll, we'll do a full... We'll do 90 minutes on the skeleton dance. <laughs> um, but it, it wasn't the first piece of art to involve dancing skeletons, but it really was the one that encodified everything we think about when we think about dancing skeletons in the popular consciousness. You want to see some, some xylophone ribcage action? Skeleton dance, baby. Sadly, we're not going to be getting into the skeleton dance today, but we should do that for Halloween at some point. Maybe, oh, we don't have time. Like you said, we're doing this mini-series, then I'm off on holiday. That takes us right up to Halloween. We have Atlantis looming over us still, so we're not going to get to that this time, but we'll do skeleton dance at some point. As you've teed up there, though, later in this episode, we're going to talk generally about the Disney 100 milestone and what that really means. And then a little bit later in this episode, we will be talking about a short called Alice's Wonderland from 1923. You do the maths on that date. It's not on Disney Plus, as Sam said. Although I was wondering, I kind of, part of me wonders if by the time you're listening to this, like on the Disney 100 day, on the 16th of October, if they're going to drop a remastered version of that. I It could be on Disney Plus. It's definitely on YouTube in pretty decent quality. So if you haven't seen it, it's only like 10 minutes long. Go and watch Alice's Wonderland, because we're going to be talking about various bits from that short. So it's out there, if maybe not on Disney+. Plus. For me, I don't know if I have warm, fuzzy feelings about this. I, I feel like I don't. And then every time I see like an image of Mickey Mouse or like Steamboat Willie, which it is not the 100th anniversary of Steamboat Willie or of Mickey Mouse... It does make me feel warm and fuzzy. It does give me a little bit of that nostalgic pang. I think we're going to get into what they've been doing to mark this centenary, but Disney know how to play on the heartstrings, and they are doing a good job of stoking up that nostalgia for things from our childhoods, things even from recent history, things from way, way back. They are masters at stoking that nostalgia. So... Let's get into it. What does Disney 100 mean? Because from the beginning of this year, of 2023, it has been such a huge focus of what Disney has been doing. You've started to see this logo everywhere. This special new 
Disney 100 logo where handily the zeros of the 100 make like a little infinity symbol they're like smushed together so it's like Disney forever Disney 100 it's just become this phrase in itself as you listen to this hopefully on October 16th today is that day today is the Disney 100 day what does that actually mean Sam what are we marking 100 years of so it's kind of boring in a way. It's not very magical. It's <laughs> it's a hundred years of corporate litigation. I don't even know <laughs> if that's the right word. It's a hundred years. On the 16th of October, 1923, that is the date that Walt Disney and Roy Disney, his brother, received the contract to produce the Alice Comedies, which is a series of short films, the first series to be produced by the Disney Brothers Studio, which was founded in Hollywood not long after that date, or I guess if they signed the contract on that date, I guess it was officially founded on that date, but that's not even certain. What we know is that that's when they got the contract, and that is a series of films, the pilot for which was Alice's Wonderland. So they made Alice's Wonderland, and then it was not publicly screened. October the 16th isn't the date on which that film was shown. It was privately screened by a producer called Margaret Winkler, in New York in early October 1923 and then on the 15th she sent Walt a telegram saying yeah I quite like that I would like to pay you and make some for me and then on the 16th they received the contract. So to put this in Disneyversity terms if all the years down the line you and I are cyborg versions of ourselves we are living forever and we're like it's Disneyversity 100. We've reached it. We've reached Disneyversity 100. And it's 100 from the day that I texted you saying, I have an idea for a podcast that we should do. That is what we're celebrating effectively in a Disney sense. It's not a thing that actually happened. It's just the date that began the thing that would happen. <laughs> yeah, but it's like the closest one can come to like putting an official date on it. And the waters on this are muddied. I've read several different biographies of Walt Disney trying to actually figure it out because, for example, a lot of places on the internet list October the 16th as the premiere date for Alice's Wonderland, but that's not true. It was never publicly shown. It was sent out to producers and privately screened. October the 16th is, is when they received the contract to start the Disney Brothers studio. So Alice's Wonderland that we're going to watch was not animated at the Disney Brothers Studio. It was animated at the Laugh-O-Gram Studio in Kansas, which is a separate entity involving separate people. So, yeah, if you've been seeing this Disney 100 stuff around everywhere, it is not 100 years of Mickey Mouse. It is not 100 years of Steamboat Willie. It's not 100 years of Snow White, which is, what, another... How many years oh, away? 15? 1937. 14 years. So 14 years away, so maybe they'll be reissuing it in 8K at that point, who knows, or like direct into your brain vision via Disney Mega Plus. But for the moment we have Disney 100 celebrating 100 years of a contract, hooray, we all love that kind of thing. But yeah, from the start of the year, Disney has been doing a lot of stuff to build up to this moment. There's a lot happening to mark this occasion, to mark this event. In the immediate future, and what we're going to be talking about in some of our future episodes, there is a new short, Once Upon a Studio, which, I don't know about you, Sam, I was already excited about, and then they released a trailer for that a couple of weeks ago, teasing this basically Night at the Museum-esque concept, in which 
at night when all the animators go home from the Disney studios, all of the characters in the art on the walls, they all come to life and they all hang out after dark. And it's going to feature characters from all across the studio's history, all mingled together in this kind of live action footage shot of the Disney studio, but with hand-drawn animation of these legendary characters by legendary animators, including our boy, the Disneyversity legend himself, Eric Goldberg. That's an exciting thing to have. Yeah, I mean, we are going to watch that short, then we're going to talk about that short on the podcast, but we have not seen it yet. But we've seen, I mean, just the images alone, like you say, are really exciting. There's an image, it almost looked like a flyer or like a giveaway from a screening that someone took a photo of and put on social media, and it was basically like a whole class photo of every character standing outside of the animation studio, and I'm just going to have so much fun if we ever get a HD version of that, if that's a, a shot from the film, just combing through it and picking out all those characters. But there's images already that we're seeing of Cap's characters next to Zero Graft characters, you know? So we've got these characters in that, like, scratchy Xerox art style next to characters with much smoother lines, and it's like, oh, that's cool. They've, they've put so much effort into the detail there. Yeah, I cannot wait to watch Once Upon a Studio. We're not going to talk much more about that for now because we're going to do a whole episode on it. We're also going to do a whole episode, by which I mean a whole mini episode, on the Disney 100 exhibition. Sam, as the listeners are listening to this, you and I are at the exhibition. We are going on the 16th. You very smartly booked us tickets for the day of the anniversary, so we will be there it sounds like there might be special things happening on that day. Who knows? We will report back in a future bonus episode, landing with you in just a couple of days. Uh, but yeah, this Disney 100 exhibition filled with all of these props and things from across the studio's history is another thing they're doing for this year. And there's been various other things. Did you watch Strictly Come Dancing this week? I'm not a massive Strictly Come Dancing person, but I do enjoy the absolute insanity of movie week where you get, for instance, in this episode, they're doing a Super Mario Brothers dance dressed as the Super Mario Brothers doing a jive. Who doesn't want to watch that on a Saturday night? But movie week began with this special Disney 100 dance. It started with the overture from Beauty and the Beast and then it cuts to, uh, I think his name is Neil, the ginger professional dancer and he's like drawing Steamboat Willie on a piece of paper. It was a whole thing. Did, did you see that? Yes, I, I watched it because I, you know, I don't normally watch Strictly, although my partner's gotten into Strictly just this season which is, was kind of helpful for this but you basically kept texting me about not just this, <laughs> not just the Disney thing but also like, oh my god it's Puss in Boots, oh my god it's Mario <laughs> Um, and I, I had to... That is a nuts premise, by the way, movie week on Strictly, because yeah. one, half of the songs are from musicals, mm -hmm. or just songs... They're from musicals that have been adapted as movies, or they're just songs like Take On Me, which happens to be in the Super Mario Brothers movie, and they're just going to dress up as Mario while they dance to it. But also, it's like, how do you compare? How is How does this competition work? I'm coming to Strictly like 20 years <laughs> later or whatever and getting furious about it. When you've got two people dressed up as 
the Super Mario Brothers tit in the bows and two people doing a goddamn Bob Fosse routine from Damn Yankees. Like, how is this a, a competition? Like, this is nuts. Strictly, it contains multitudes. But yeah, the, the Disney dance to kick things off, it was quite classy. They didn't even have somebody, like, singing the lyrics or singing the songs. They had, like, instrumental versions of the songs. They had stuff from Beauty and the Beast. They had Let It Go. They had Part of Your World. Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Colours of the Wind got a big showing. Uh, but that was very specifically themed as a Disney 100 dance. There's been various other things. There's this, like, Disney 100 trailer, effectively, that plays that, again, it is a corporate trailer. It is Disney promoting itself at the same time. It does make me emotional to watch. It is kids watching these movies and having a look of magic in their eyes. It's a little kid dressed as Mirabelle watching Encanto, seeing herself on the screen, Sam. But listen, right? This is just so our dynamic. It touches your heart, and all I can think of is there is a clip in there from the original Avatar movie, which is not a Disney movie. It came out before Disney bought Fox. If you want to yeah. put The Way of Water in there, I might quibble because it was produced before the purchase, but it was released by Disney. All right, fair enough. But 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 Avatar the original. That's not a ah. I've got it. They reissued Avatar in cinemas last year before the way of water came out mm. that that'll be how it i'm not saying it's right sam okay. I'm, not, I'm not i'm not advocating for it but that probably will be their justification for that it's weird because the trailer features avatar it features loads of star wars and marvel stuff and obviously that comes under the wider disney banner but it skews a lot towards big live action stuff that you don't think of as being disney disney in this hundred year celebration if we go to this exhibition on monday slash today as you listen to this and they have anything at all from original star wars trilogy from captain america the first avenger from iron man from any of that right phase one marvel anything like that i'm going to flip and you're going to be delighted and you're going to be like oh look it's like glob shitto's lightsaber or whatever and i'm going to be like no <laughs> I don't want anything from any George Lucas-directed Star Wars content in my Disney 100 exhibition. Return of the Jedi, also re-released in cinemas this summer for its 40th anniversary. It counts. It's fine. If you flip at the Disney 100 exhibition and are asked to leave, I'm not leaving with you. I'm staying. So... There's all these things happening. There's a Sarah Bareilles cover of When You Wish Upon a Star. That is a thing. There is this, as I mentioned, the Disney 100 logo, but there's a new Disney 100 ident that pops up at the beginning of all the recent films, which has little bits of Easter eggs in there. If you look at the main logo in front of the castle, uh, I think it's on the left-hand side, you see the Matterhorn Mountain. The Matterhorn, if you don't know, there is a famous Disneyland ride based around the mountain from Sweden, I think? <laughs> I don't know my it's mountains. from Switzerland. Switzerland! I'm saying that very confidently, and I don't actually It was one know. of the Swurs. One of the, <laughs> one of the European Swurs. It's on the border between Italy and Switzerland, and while you may think of it from the iconic Disneyland ride, I of course know that it was originally featured in the less iconic Disney live-action movie, Third Man on the Mountain. So that is what I believe that's a reference right. to. Right. in the new logo <laughs> so the matterhorn is on one side on the other side is pride rock there's various bits of easter eggs look out for that next time you see it at the cinema and the big one that we're leading up to which 
we're not going to talk about much for now, but we will do down the line is Wish, which is the new original Walt Disney Animation Studios movie, the follow-up to Strange World. You can tell they were like, Strange World is not going to be our Disney 100 movie. I think it's a good film. It's a good film, but it was not a hit for the studio at all. Whereas Wish is going to be an original Disney princess fairy tale story intentionally referencing this grand legacy of princess stories in the studio. So that is coming out in November. That is happening very, very soon. So yeah, tons of things happening for the Disney 100 celebration. Other than Once Upon a Studio and the exhibition, anything you're particularly looking forward to, Sam? Anything that's delighted you i'm quite delighted by we've talked about the disney 100 logo but we haven't talked about the disney 100 lego there's been a few lego sets they've brought out so i guess all of it's been like we talked about the little minifigures i think that was disney 100 branded they did most excitingly for me a giant movie camera that is built from lego and then alongside it is a little walt disney minifigure with a black and white mickey and minnie and Dumbo and Bambi for some reason, and a multiplane camera. It's Walt Disney with the original multiplane camera, and then in the actual big movie camera, it's got a little model of his his studio, his his office, and that's fabulous. But I don't really care. Like the big camera is just a big camera. It, that, <laughs> that's not like very Disney specific, you know. All I want is the little multiplane camera, the little Walt Disney. The multiplane camera is amazing because you might be thinking, oh, is the multiplane camera like almost a minifigure scale accessory? No, it's a buildable. It's like its own little model, a little top down multiplane camera thing. It's super cool. I don't own that Lego set yet. Yet? Question mark. Sam, you don't own it either. We need. If anyone from Lego is listening to this, <laughs> you know where to find us. These are the connections that we should be forging here. These are the, yeah. the people that we need to know. But. Yeah, we deserve that, Sam. We deserve to get one of those. Well, we've talked about what the actual anniversary is. We've talked about what they've been doing for it. Is it important? Are they making it important? It does feel kind of important for me for the same reasons that really we started this podcast, which is, yes, on the one hand, it's a fun excuse to rewatch slash watch for the first time all of these movies to reflect on all of these films one by one to see all these changes in the studio but you cannot deny the incredibly huge cultural impact of Disney on our world. You can't deny, for better or worse, whatever your feelings personally on these films or this studio, you cannot ignore the fact that it has become a huge part of the background or even the foreground of our daily lives. These stories, these films have kind of shaped our culture, shaped our cultural consciousness for a century now, it, it does feel like a big deal to mark 100 years of Disney, I think. Yeah, I definitely think, I think mark 100 years of Disney is right. Celebrate 100 years of Disney feels a bit far for me because of all the, uh, I mean, the bad things. <laughs> all, the, all the bad things that they've done, the bad politics and the bad decisions and, and, and often some quite bad people who've been involved uh, with, with the company, with the Walt Disney Company over the years. But always, I think, what 
can be celebrated at least is the artists, the individuals who've worked on these films, which is something we try to do in our podcast and which is something I wish I was seeing a bit more of and maybe we will in the exhibition. But for example, I don't just want a little Walt Disney with the multiplane camera in my Lego set. I want a little Ubai works as well. I wish there were like foreground in some of the, the individuals who get a bit swept up in the idea of the Walt Disney legacy while they were celebrating this 100 years of output at the same time. I don't want to get too technical on my Lego jargon, but what Sam wants is a Brickhead series of the Nine Old Men. <laughs> that is that is what we're after here. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there is that difference between marking the anniversary and celebrating the anniversary. Obviously, Disney are going to be celebrating the anniversary. And I think they are, as is their right, very intentionally stoking up people's nostalgia, people's warm feelings towards Disney in a way that this year is also a hundred years of Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers are like, in a sense, doing a bit of like a Warner's 100 thing, but they're not pushing it in the same way as Disney is. It's not being presented in the same way that Disney is. They're not, it doesn't feel equivalent, even though they're effectively marking the same thing. I think they are counting on the fact that Disney does mean a lot to people personally in that brand, in the way that Warner Brothers has so many films that people love, it has stories and characters that people love, but it's not actually Warner Brothers itself that people love, but Disney has cultivated this bubble around itself of, you don't just love these stories, you don't just love these characters, you don't just love these films, you love Disney. And I think we all whether we like it or not, do get a bit caught up in that. And hopefully, as you say, what we do on the podcast is balance all of these things. We celebrate these films, but we also don't shy away from from all the bad things in the history, from, you know, the times that things didn't go to plan or the things that you wouldn't do today. But this is what Disney does. This is something we've talked about a lot on the podcast so far, is that a major part of the studio and the company's role in itself has been this self-mythologizing has been not just creating the stuff but then also creating the idea of Disney that it sells back to you again for better or worse there is something comforting in that idea of what it sells back to you at the same time it is the company packaging itself with the work that it's already done and selling that back to you again in a different way there's something very obviously capitalistic about that and and that takes us right back to the idea that disney have chosen the parameters of 100 years of disney right like they've decided that this is when we're doing it and everyone's doing it because they're telling us to so for example they have chosen, they have elected to choose a time period which kind of misses out the several years of abject failure um, <laughs> that, that Walt Disney went through when he was producing the Lapagrams cartoons initially in Kansas in, in the years leading up to the production of Alice's Wonderland. Obviously, the studio always had its ups and downs, and we've covered a lot of them, but that moment in 1923 was the beginning of success, right? The Alice comedies weren't an immediate hit, but very shortly, like three or four films in, they started to do very well, and they put Walt on the path to Oswald, on the path to Steamboat Willie, and after that, it was all on the up and up, but... It wasn't all sunshine and roses in the years leading up to that. Walt was in a very dark place when he was trying to finish and sell Alice, and the Laugh-O-Gram studio itself was going bankrupt. So Disney have chosen this date, I think, partly to you know miss out that little bit. Maybe all that will get covered in the exhibition as well. But 
it's not part of the official story of the Disney studio. That begins when they started to do well. We don't have time to fully get into this right now, but also another byproduct of Disney 100, the resurrection of Oswald. The return of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit has been a wonderful thing to see. Again, maybe we'll do something with Oswald down the line. But for now, let's do what we do on this podcast and let's look at the work. Let's look at the artistry of what goes into these films. Let's go back to the very beginning. Shall we talk about 1923's Alice's Wonderland? I would like nothing more. A laugh-o-gram, laughing all the way to the bank. Don't even know what that means. Laughing <laughs> <laughs> all the way to the gram. Right then, we are going to do a fast-forward, a micro-whiz-through our normal episode structure. That is it. There's enough for us. Time for class to begin. Blah, 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 blah. Sam, Alice's Wonderland... People might think they know what they're getting from this, from that name, but it's not Alice in Wonderland. So if anybody hasn't found this yet on YouTube, what is happening in this short? Can you explain just what this short is? So this is mostly live action, right? There's a live action framing device to this, at least, whereby a little girl called Alice visits a pre-moustache Walt Disney in his cartoon studio because she, quote, would like to watch him draw some funnies. That's what she says. She wants to see him draw those funnies. So she goes to the, the studio and sees Walt and some of the other animators drawing cartoon characters who then come to life and dance around and fight each other and stuff for their enjoyment. And then later that night, Alice goes to sleep and dreams that she has made her way into a cartoon world where everything apart from her is a cartoon. And she is rendered, importantly, all the way through this in live action and everything else is an animated cartoon. Yeah, so not only is it effectively the start of Disney, is it a very early cartoon, but it's also a very early blend of cartoon and live action, which we think of as being maybe a bit more of an advanced technique, something that wouldn't stretch back that far. It is also, as you say, a Winnie the Pooh-esque honey nightmare in which Alice goes to sleep and has a crazy trippy dream where she's chased by lions and all sorts in this fantastical reverie. So... We've talked quite a bit about the background of the shorts already, but is there anything else in terms of the historical context that we should know before discussing the short itself? I mean, I think we need to talk a little bit more about why. So, like I said, Walt had a studio in Kansas called Laughogram, which they weren't even making films to be nationally distributed. They were making short cartoons to be shown just at the local cinema, um, mostly based on fairy tales with like a modern twist. And this enterprise was failing, it wasn't doing very well, so Walt decided that he needed a new gimmick, he needed a new kind of cartoon that he could shop around to national distributors to try and finally make it big as an animator. So he came up with this idea, this gimmick, of a live-action girl in a cartoon world. And it wasn't the first film to combine live-action with animation, in fact some of the very earliest animated films, like Emile Cole's Phantasmagory from 1908, which is really the first kind of drawn cartoon, had the animator's live-action hands reaching in to interact with the characters. But the direct precedent to this was the character Coco the Clown from Max Fleischer's Out of the Inkwell series. So Fleischer, who would really be the biggest competitor at Disney during their early years, had this series called Out of the Inkwell, where this clown would jump out of the inkwell and run around Max Fleischer's animation desk causing trouble. So the idea for 
the series that would become known as the Alice comedies was Walt's going to invert that. So instead of an animated character in a live action world, it's going to be a live action character in a cartoon world. And he shipped this idea around to various different distributors, both in New York, which was the center of the animation industry in its early years, and in Hollywood, where Walt would eventually move to saying that we have just discovered something new and clever in animated cartoons, which I like as a phrase. It's like they just happened upon it. Like, look what we've found. Like, I just turned the page and look what's there. And eventually, this woman, Margaret Winkler, who was the first female film distributor and already owned the rights to two of the biggest cartoon series, Out of the Inkwell and Felix the Cat... She was about to kind of lose the rights. She felt that her grip on those cartoons was slipping, so she wanted a new series to maintain a foothold in animation. And she screened this, enjoyed it, and on the 16th of October, commissioned Walt to make it into a series. And thus, the Disney 100 was born on that contractual day. So, oh, I have one other question. Who's Virginia Davis, who plays... Alice. Has she popped up in anything else that we've watched? Does she come back into the studio at any point? Kind of, you know. So she's just a little girl from Kansas and Walt paid her and her mother who plays herself in the film and they actually filmed it in their house. They basically hired them to do this. They didn't pay them up front, they just said you'll get like a percentage of whatever we make. But then when they moved to Hollywood they actually paid for the Davises to move out with them because part of Winkler's contract stipulated that it had to be this little girl because she was so charming. Uh, and she would eventually be replaced and there'd be four different Alice actresses. But Virginia Davis, as she got older, would continue to work with the Disney studio in small capacities. So she tried out for the voice of Snow White, for example, and didn't get it. Oof, brutal. <laughs> yeah. Well, she like a lot of silent actors. Maybe it was a singing in the rain situation and she was like, Hi, I'm Snow White. Just a really <laughs> shrill, irritating <laughs> voice. Someday my prince will come. That was a new, she was just from Kansas, so she wouldn't have sounded like that, whatever <laughs> that was, geographically. She did a little stint in the ink and paint department when she got older as well, which is where most of the women in the studio worked. But I think most pertinently for us, she did some background voices in Pinocchio. So she, she is the voice of background hoodlums on Pleasure Island playing like little boys. So whenever you just hear some characters like Ruffhausen in the background of Pleasure <laughs> Island, some of those are voiced by Virginia Davis. So maybe she did sound like that impression I just did. Like that. It sounds like it'd be more suited to those kids than to Snow White. Anybody want some beer? <laughs> yeah, that Something kind like of that. thing, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the short itself, which in the opening title cards, it has its scenario and direction by Walt Disney photography by the most incredible spelling of ub i works ubi i w- 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 works lots of b's lots of w's just briefly explain for people who ub i works is if, if it's possible to briefly explain so ub i works that is his birth name the, the way that it's spelt here and then right. it was it was kind of truncated later in his career so he was of all the people working with Walt Disney in the early days, he was the most talented artist, was the most talented animator, and um, worked on the Laphograms with Walt and a little bit on this film, although actually Walt Disney did the vast majority of the animation himself for Alice's Wonderland and the first few Alice shorts. But eventually they brought some of their Kansas animators over to Hollywood to work with them and Ubi Works was one of those and he played a big part in the creation of Oswald and the creation of Mickey Mouse 
and was the lead animator on, for example, Steamboat Willie, and did the skeleton dance basically himself solo. Uh, so a really important guy in the history of Disney was like the, the real animation talent. And you can tell because there's a big gulf between the films that he worked on and these early ones that Walt is doing himself, I would say. So Ubi Works is involved here, as is Rudolph Ising, the Ising on the cake for this uh, this short. And yeah, it's it's a silent short. They hadn't got synchronised sound yet, which was the technical innovation that allows Steamboat Willie to happen. So we have like intertitles, we have text coming up on the screen. Little Alice, chuck full of curiosity, pays her first visit to our cartoon studio. And as you say, I love, she knocks and goes into where Walt is working and says, I would like to watch you draw some funnies. <laughs> we know we're in 1923 because everybody is saying weird things like that. <laughs> and wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all want to watch him draw some funnies? And this is a bit like what Emil Cole did and Max Fleischer and another of the very first animators, J. Stuart Blackton and Winsor McKay, who were also among the first animators producing these kinds of films. What, this is what they did? Do they go and find Walt Disney and say, I would like to watch you draw some funnies? <laughs> no, none of them cared a jot about Walt Disney because they were all more successful and talented. But, <laughs> but what they did was they would factor themselves into the production. So Winsor McKay, a real kind of genius animator who made Gertie the Dinosaur, like one of the absolute best of all time, he always had live-action wraparounds for his films like this where he would explain semi-jokingly but semi-seriously the work that went into their production and you get that with Max Fleischer and Out of the Inkwell and you get that with Walt Disney here so that was fairly common and to start with when it's just Walt and Alice exploring the animation studio and seeing all of these cartoon animals jump off the page that is extremely Max Fleischer it's very similar to the premise of a lot of the Out of the Inkwell cartoons. Yeah so we see basically Walt's drawings come to life he welcomes Alice in and he's like, yeah, I'll show you some stuff. In, like, in 1923, oldie-timey, yes, I will show you some stuff. Uh, and what he shows her is all of these drawings. In and on his sketchbook, I like we have this little, like, band of cats playing a tune on top of Walt's sketchbook. We have this proto-Mickey character poking a real live-action cat with a stick, which is kind of adorable. It has this, like, fun little sequence where... We're seeing Walt and the animator's creations coming to life. And then it kind of, as you say, inverts in the second half of the short when instead of having animation coming to life in a live action frame, we then have Alice, the live action Alice, in her dreams when she's tucked up in bed at night, heading into a cartoon world. And even then, she arrives in this train. But the train, then there is like a live action set i say set it's like a wall of the train that is live action but that is created in a cartoon style i like all these ways that they like hand over hand the baton from live action to animation animation back to live action with sets that look like cartoons and cartoons that become animated sets for a live action character it's a really fun mix yeah and part of it is just trying to produce this as, as cheaply and easily as possible. So what they did for the most of the, the shots where Alice interacts with the cartoon characters is they just filmed her against a white sheet and then animated the characters around where she would be and kind of watched the film back frame by frame so that they could line it up. They would animate the characters on transparent cells and then composite them 
with the live action footage and the development process. But you're right, we also do get a lot of live action sets that have been drawn to look like cartoon environments that she can walk around in. And there's also a couple of shots here where Alice is animated in the sense that they've taken individual photographs of her and played them together in quick succession instead of having her actually be filmed in real time. So the scenes here where she's running away from the lions, they've basically done a kind of photographic version of what in drawn animation you would call a walk cycle. They've filmed, or a run cycle in this case, they've taken photographs of her in each stage of running and then recycled it so it's the same poses over and over again. I love the creativity here because on the one hand, everything they're doing has this very handmade quality to it. It's, I mean, it's a hundred years old. It's lo-fi in a lot of ways. It's like very just kind of obvious practical techniques, but to achieve something really imaginative, that's so cool about them taking straight up photos of her and then using that to animate. I hate to bring up no, I love to bring up The Matrix at every opportunity, but it reminds me of what they did for the bullet time rig, when Neo is dodging bullets and they have the camera swooping around him. That's not video footage. They created this giant physical practical rig of all these photo cameras in a big wavy line going round in like a horseshoe shape. And Keanu Reeves leans back and waves his arms as he does it, and it goes every camera in a line taking a photo and they put that together and they have created 24 frame per second footage. I love that stuff and this feels like a bit of a version of that. Sorry to shoehorn the Matrix in <laughs> once again. It's a process called pixelation if you're interested. It's stop motion animation created with photographs of human actors. So like Neighbours by Norman McLaren is a, a really famous Oscar winning example. Or uh, if you want to watch a feature length version, there's The Secret Adventures of Tom Thumb, which is a British film where pixelated so stop motion performances from human actors are integrated with stop motion performances from clay puppets. That's a really cool movie. But this does it extremely briefly, and I'm nevertheless glad that we're able to talk about it and get a couple more movies on the letterbox list of every movie that we talk about on Disneyversity. <laughs> the Secret Adventures of Tom Thumb. There we go. It's going on letterbox as we speak. So Alice turns up in this cartoon land called Cartoon Land in her dreams. I love they've all created signs to welcome her. We've got Hooray for Alice, Long Live Alice, Welcome Alice, and my personal favourite, Hurrah for Alice. And they parade her down the street in a way that it's impossible not to think of how big a deal like Disneyland parades are in the theme parks that in the very first effectively pre-Disney but first Disney shorts we have this character being welcomed by this oldie-timey parade. <laughs> I love that Alice then returns the favour. Maybe my favourite text screen in this short. It's not, I would like to watch you draw some funnies. It's Alice saying, now I will do a dance. <laughs> and she busts out some 1920s moves. It, it, it really is literally just, they've said to a five-year-old kid, just do a dance and she's just doing whatever she wants. Like that does not look choreographed at all. You, you wouldn't see that on Strictly Come Dancing. She's literally just like flailing her arms around in the air and, and doing some jumps and stuff. That's great. But I think we'll have to talk about, because this is Disneyversity, just all the guys. Like that's the great thing about this film. Like the main draw of this film for me is it's an enormous array, just loads and loads of 
extremely un-Disney like very simple abstractions of like animals and they're all adorable and a little bit weird <laughs> uh, there's an amazing hippo there's an elephant that she rides on there's giraffes there's monkeys in a little hat there's like a I've just written horse thing there's a, <laughs> a, a semi-horse kind of creature and there's um my two favorites two potential Disney versity legend contenders are the reception committee who are a group of dogs in hats yes. <laughs> who have jobs will love dogs with jobs and they are the reception committee they're wearing like top hats but also i think even better than that following behind her in the parade is a chicken riding on a tortoise and the chicken is waving a little american flag oh it's not even a question <laughs> chicken riding a tortoise waving an american flag the chicken, the tortoise, and the flag, they're all Disneyversity legends. They're all in there. Yeah. It's a, an incredible short for weird little guys. And even when it gets sinister, like the end of this short is Alice being chased around by really freaky lions. Even the lions are weird little guys in this movie. They're deeply strange. There's this sequence where I'm watching this going like, oh, the freaky lions escape from their cage. They're running down the street. Like, they're, they're going to try and kill Alice. Why is it going this way? Classic, even from the very beginning, there's this sense of like, oh, we need a sense of narrative escalation. We need something quite dark to happen at the end of the story to then provide some relief when ultimately, spoiler alert, it is all fine. Alice wakes up in her bed. But the way that the lions are like salivating, they're like absolutely drooling everywhere. They take their teeth out to sharpen them up. They're all like licking their lips. They're just absolutely little chaotic beasts who are hungry for child flesh. It's crazy. And then, of course, well, first of all, she beats them up repeatedly. They keep, like, running off screen, and then she just, like, beats them up effectively. And, I mean, that's pretty badass for Alice. They all run into a tree. She beats them up. They all run out of the tree. They run back into the tree. She beats them up again. They run out of the tree. They run down a hole. She beats them up in a hole. Then they escape the hole. There's... Why is this short so much about Alice beating up, like, five lions? And then it ends, they chase her off a cliff and she falls and there's no resolution, she just wakes up. And yeah. that's nice and all, but for me, like, my only real, my note for this, if I was Margaret Winkler, my note <laughs> right. would be, why does it have to be a dream? Because in the beginning, she goes to the Disney studio and all the drones are coming to life. So, like... It's already magic. The, the Disney studio itself is magic. These drones are magic. They come to life. That's not a dream. That's real. So in this world, it's like, it's magic enough for drones to come to life. But to actually go to Cartoon Land, that has to be a dream. What's up with that? The internal logic. They have time, Sam. They have a hundred years to figure it out from this point. But yeah, it is confusing why certain things are magic and some things are dreams. Sometimes, Sam, I don't know if you've heard this before. I've just come up with this off the top of my head. But, like, a, a dream is a wish, but it's a wish that your heart makes. A dream is a wish right. your heart makes. So because her heart made the wish to be in Cartoon Land, she yes. dreamed it. And that's the wish that her heart made. Spot on. We've <laughs> nailed it. We've got it. The thing that really blows my mind about this is you watch it. And obviously it's old. We're talking about it because it's 100 years old. As you look at it, this is not how things look nowadays. It is very clearly oldie-timey. 
But the thing, Sam, that is really breaking my brain, because it still feels modern-ish, it still just feels very fresh and relevant. The thing that blows my mind is I saw Killers of the Flower Moon last week. Humble brag. It's so good. We're not going to cover it on this podcast. It's way out of our purview, but it is absolutely incredible. You have to go and see it. Uh, But that is set in the 1920s, and it's in the Osage Nation in Oklahoma, which is really not that far from Kansas, Missouri, which is where Walt is making this stuff. It's like very similar place in America, same time period, and the thought of the characters in that film like watching Alice's Wonderland and that that all syncs up that blows my mind for some reason it breaks my brain this short feels so ahead of its time this must have been crazy to watch back in 1923 it just it feels like it's from another time altogether from when I think of the events happening in Killers of the Flower Moon I realize I've gone off on a tangent here (laughs) but this is just where my brain is at right now um, well, I haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon, so I can't, <laughs> I can't build on that. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not uncharacteristic of animation at the time. Like the stuff the Fleischer Brothers were doing is already very surreal in a lot of ways, more so than this. But also, it's worth noting that Disney's influences were kind of East Coast at this point in time. Like the the animation industry was centered on the East Coast where things were a bit more modern, where it was in, you know, the jazz age is in full swing, the modernists are modernist and up a storm in, in the literary world and stuff like that. And that's the kind of milieu that people like the Fleischer Brothers arose from. And that's the kind of stuff that's influencing uh, Walt in Kansas, Missouri. So it's kind of Kansas via new york city and that's why we get this like surrealist element and, and i'm sure that there are artists from all over the united states working in like a, a surreal or modernist style during this period but um yeah that's that's kind of where walt's ideas are partly coming from i think so before we wrap up on the film do you want to do a lasting legacy are there reviews at the time what are we what are we doing that would normally be the end of our show <laughs> well it's not reviews because like i say this wasn't really released the only review that matters is margaret winkler sending that contract so none of the killers of the flower moon would have been able to watch this but they would have been able to watch one of the 56 films that they produced in the alice series so alice was played by four different young actresses across 56 films from 1924 to 1927 which is an average of 19 films a year which is crackers so for perspective 124 mickey mouse films were made between 1929 and 1953 which is an average of seven per year so the rate that they were putting out these alice films was like about three times of the rate that they would eventually be putting out mickey mouse's uh, titles include <clears throat> Alice's Eggplant, Alice's Tin Pony, Alice Chops the Suey, Alice Rattled by Rats, Alice Charms the Fish, Alice the Golf Bug, Alice the Collegiate, Alice the Naughty Knight but Naughty has a Silent K, (laughs) Alice's Three Bad Eggs, (laughs) Alice the Beach Nut. So they made a lot of these and you can see that Walt becomes increasingly disinterested with the live-action premise, and Alice becomes decentralized in these, and the main character becomes Julius the Cat, which who is the cat that you see in the live-action portion of this, fighting the dog. That's a character from the Laughagram films called Julius from Walt's earlier right. work, who would eventually become basically the lead in the Alice comedies. 
and eventually Walt said that he wanted to do cartoon comedies and not kiddie comedies, and that led him to develop Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, his first like real animated star. But to go back to Alice and some of the characters that arose from that series, Julius the Cat has a little bit of a lasting legacy. So there are two stores named after Julius the Cat on Buena Vista Street in Disney's California Adventure theme park, which is an area based on 1920s Hollywood. So there's a bit of kind of loose Alice representation in the parks. So there's Julius Katz's, like Katz as in the surname, Julius Katz's Shoe and Watch Repair, and Julius Katz and Son's Appliance Repair. And he also appears in the queue for the ride Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway on the packaging for a snack called Laugh-O-Grams. But Laugh-O-Grams, but Americans pronounce it Grams. We don't have time to get into this right now, but but the way Americans say Graham for Graham and Craig for Craig. Craig. That could be its own whole podcast. <laughs> Sorted out. Yeah, I want an investigative... I want the NPR team, I want the guys from Serial to do an investigative <laughs> podcast about why they say Graham and Craig. Anyway, the other thing that Alice, the series, gave us is the big man himself, Pete. Shrek. <laughs> Pete! <laughs> How do, Pete wasn't in this I, I would have seen Pete if he was in this short well Pete was not in this short but he did appear in a few Alice shorts time so he's part of the Alice lineage so he originally popped up as Alice and Julius's nemesis in Alice Solves the Puzzle where he is introduced as Bootleg Pete <laughs> this is on a title yeah. card Bootleg Pete colon a collector of rare crossword puzzles Wow, what a big bad. But he is. He's, he's, Alice is trying to solve this crossword puzzle. She's got yeah. one clue left. And Pete is trying to steal it because it's a rare cross... What even is a rare crossword puzzle? It's in the newspaper. What is that? <laughs> what is a collector of rare crossword puzzles? Alice solves the puzzle. And the puzzle is, who's Pete? <laughs> <laughs> and we first see Pete. He does look quite different in these cartoons. But we first see Pete, the first shot of Pete in the entire history of Disney is of Pete riding on water skis being pulled by a pelican. And it's absolutely oh, rad. You could puller. definitely put like in the background of that, you know, like some real surf rock, some wipeout nice. stuff. Okay, almost done, almost done. But I have to shout out really the coolest bit of influence that this film has had, the coolest part of its lasting legacy. There is a television show, we might have mentioned it, I'll check the letterbox list, called Over the Garden Wall, which is the greatest animated TV show, near the greatest TV show of all time. It's extraordinary. It's very Halloween-y. It's very autumnal. So if you want to track that down and watch it, now is the time if you're listening to this in October. Then every year I say you've got to watch it, like you've really got to watch Over the Garden Wall. Even if you, I know you're on holiday for Halloween, but it kind of, it's relevant in November. It's a pan-autumn show. And it's a spooky animated Cartoon Network show about two kids who get lost in the woods with lots of references to the history of animation, the history of fairy tales, the history of this kind of story being told. And the history of America as well. And it is incredible, it's beautiful, it's moving, it's hilarious. But there is an episode that is directly based on specifically this cartoon on Alice's Wonderland. Where one of the characters ends up in a kind of dream sequence visiting a cloud city where he meets 
lots of kind of weird uncanny cartoon characters all of whom are based directly on like the background characters from this and it has a similar structure where he has to fight a baddie at the end and there are also not one but three reception committees in a yes. fantastic gag um, <laughs> so if, if you've seen this short then you will get a lot out of that episode of over the garden wall and if you've seen over the garden wall but you haven't seen this short now you know that's where that episode comes from lovely stuff well i think that wraps us up on the film wait no, we've forgotten the most important part of the lasting legacy of Alice's Wonderland. A hundred years of Disney! Every other thing of Disney that comes is the lasting legacy of Alice's Wonderland. There we go. Smashed it. <laughs> yeah, now start listening to the rest of the podcast and you'll get the rest of the lasting legacy. Start from episode one. And that is it for part one of our Disney 100 Celebration miniseries. Join us for the next part as we'll be breaking down Disney's brand new short, Once Upon a Studio, set to feature characters from across the company's entire cinematic history. It might just be us saying, did you see that? Did you see this guy? But it should be a ton of fun anyway, especially if we find the rumoured return of Gurgi from the Black Cauldron. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this mini-episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you fancy dropping us a little review, a star rating, share the episode with your friends, tell people about the show, it really helps us get discovered. Any of those things would be amazing. If you do that, we'll let you watch us draw some funnies. And that is not a euphemism. <laughs> For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.